All right, y'all ready? Let's pray and get rolling. Uh, Paul Rasmussen, will you pray for us, brother? Father, we are so grateful we can meet together again tonight. Thank you for the opportunity to learn from your word. We're so grateful for your word. How it uh, sharpens us and transforms us. Be with us tonight as we share and hear from a word that can really give us hope. In Christ's name, amen. 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 Thanks, Paul. All right. Well, this is the... Uh, Child Adoption Seminar, if you're not here in the right place. <laughs> no, I figured that kind of in our context doesn't look exactly like what we're going for. But it's not not what we're going for. We'll see that here in a minute. Um, does everybody have one of the, uh, the copies of the confession? If you don't have one, there's some up there. There's some in the back. Just raise your hand. Callie will run you down one. Uh, it's chapter 12. And if this is your first time coming, we have not gone 1 through 12. We started with 11, then we went back to 9, and then did 10, and now we're skipping 11 because we already did it, and we're on 12. So you can see the orthodoxy behind the whole structure of it all, that it was just really well thought out by uh, the leader of the, <laughs> of the group. Uh, but the reason why was we started with justification just because I believe it's one of the most precious doctrines that we have, and then also most undertaught, and then that went really well, and so then we kept going, and so I figured, hey, let's, let's try to round out this part of the confession that's all about soteriology. Now, that's a $5 word. What does it mean? So, it means salvation. Soteriology is just the study of salvation. And oftentimes, oh, Matt, we all saw you and heard you come in. <laughs> uh, Soteriology, the study of salvation. And too often what we do is, well, and I say we in the evangelical churches, we just reduce salvation down to just that one word, salvation. But the Bible has lots of angles to look at that one idea. It's, it's a massive idea. So we've looked at justification. We've looked at effectual calling. Now we're looking at adoption. Now, justification, if, just by way of review, what kind of term is that? What kind of uh, realm and society, would that word be used? Legal. So it's a legal term. And then we have adoption, which is what kind of term? Just take a guess. Familial, like a family term, or if you want to go deep Latin, it's filial, filial term. And then redemption would be a marketplace term. So what we're looking at is just another aspect of our salvation. And if you think about it, if something is, the way Hebrews describes it, so great salvation, this so great salvation, then surely it's got to have more than just one dimension. It's, it's like a diamond that you just keep turning and every facet just sparkles in a, in a, a unique and brilliant way. So we're going to keep looking at it through adoption. Now, if you're looking at your confession, you see that this chapter is the shortest one in the whole thing. And it's number 12, if you're looking for it. Number 12, chapter 12. Page 30, even. It's the shortest one. Now, if you can take a guess, this is more in the realm of history versus theology. Why would the chapter on adoption be this short? Versus justification, which that took, that took four weeks just to do one. Why would this one be so short? More historical than it is theological reason. This is for extra bonus points. You get an extra donut if you get this one right. 
So they, they ha it's written in the year 1689. That's following, that's like the generation behind what big event in the 1500s? The Reformation, Protestant Reformation. Okay, so in the Protestant Reformation, what's the big doctrine being attacked or, or have just been completely wiped out by the Romish church? Justification by faith alone. So you got to write a whole lot about it because that's the big doctrine. That's the one that Luther said that the church stands or falls on. But Rome doesn't have any real doctrine of adoption that's contrary or problematic. So you don't have to do a lot of unexplaining and then re-explaining. And you don't have to do a lot of proving because it's not up for debate. And also, it gets kind of overlooked. Can you think of any doctrinal statement in any church that doesn't have a confession that even has a statement on adoption? I can't. I mean, we talk about this topic a lot in kind of the big evangelical world, but what does it end up being mostly? In your experience or you heard it talked about, like what, what's, it, what's kind of the, the feel around it, if it's even called a doctrine or not, what do you think? Take it for granted, fly over doctrine. It's the Iowa of doctrines. <laughs> You're just flying over it, getting somewhere else. <laughs> Bob Barstead's not here, so I can make that joke. <laughs> yeah, you take it for granted. And, and, and it's, you know, adoption, we obviously know we're getting at the idea of being children of God. And, well, okay. Entitlement, right? Yeah, like, of course, of course I'm a child of God. And we, we, and we throw that around without really thinking about it, without really even grounding it anywhere in the Bible. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to ground it. It's a, it's a precious doctrine. So let me ask this question, going off of that. Who are God's children? Who are they? Nobody wants to answer. This feels like a trap. Believers. But, but aren't we all children of God? I see some shaking heads. No? Okay. Well, we got to deal with this then. Let's look at John 1.12. We're going to look at a bunch, but go ahead and go to just John 1.12 right now. When somebody reads, gets to John 1.12, just read it. So how do you become a child of God? Believe. So it, is that something that you can earn? Is that something that you just have? It has, it's a right that's given. According to the Bible, it's a right that's given. So this is the way theologians have talked about it in, in uh, certain circumstances, that there is a universal neighborhood, but that is not a universal brotherhood. Meaning, like, we, we are universally to love our neighbor. Every human being is our neighbor. Right. And we're to love them, right? Like, we go, we ground that principally in a place like the Good Samaritan story, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the second of the greatest commandments, right? But universal brotherhood, and that's different. To be a child of God, who gets to decide who, are the, who the kids are and who the father is? 
The father does, right? Certainly, if we're talking about adoption, no kid says just, hey, you're adopting me. It's the father decides that, right? Right, so, okay, so we, we're, we're thinking through these things, but there's a, there's a lot of tropes around this that we got to process all the way through so that nobody is born a child of the Almighty God. It's, it's, it's through faith. Those who believe. So you got to be not once born, but twice born to call yourself a child of God. So that's what's called the rebirth, being born again. So now let's just define this before we get into the actual text of the, of, of, uh, the confession. Somebody just give a working definition of adoption. Not, don't, don't think theologically, just think Merriam-Webster, just dictionary. Adoption. In general, what does it mean? One born to them biologically. Okay, so you, you're bringing in some, a child that wasn't yours. Now let's take the realm even out of children and parents. Like what, if you adopt that policy to, to take on, to accept, take responsibility, so declare. So this is how the dictionary defines it. The action or fact of choosing to take up, follow, or use something. So hear that again. The action or fact, so either it's an action of adopting or you have adopted, it's a fact, it's a status, to take up, follow, or use something. Choosing to do that. So that's, a, that's big right there. Do you, do you hear grace in that definition? Something that's unearned and it's just brought in? You'd certainly hear election in there too. So we can't avoid these kind of topics. We talk about adoption as biblical and if it's biblical, then sovereign election has to be biblical. But we talked about that a month ago. Go back and listen to those. All right, let's get into this first. Uh, there's, two, there's two main statements, and under the second statement in the, uh, in the confession, there's subpoints. So I'll read the first main statement, and then we'll look at some verses. So if you can follow along with me there, if you would like to. All those that are justified, mine's a little bit of older language, by the way. Yours is going to read just a little bit different. All those that are justified, God vouchsafed, which means granted, in and for the sake of his only son, Jesus Christ, to be made partakers of the grace of adoption. So it links now justification to adoption. Let's go to Ephesians 1, and then we'll be in Galatians 4. It's the same neighborhood. Ephesians, go past Galatians, and then we'll turn back to Galatians. Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. If somebody gets there... Read it for us. Well, we're not four through five, just verse five. Ephesians 1, 5. He predestined us for adoption to himself and sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Can you go back to verse four and read the last two words of that? Last two words of verse four. In love. In love. He predestined us for adoption. Now, that makes so much sense in our minds when it talk, we talk about adoption, right? Does anybody outside of straight up horror movies adopt a child and it not be in love? No, that's, that's what the whole thing means. That's why when that happens in a church or in a, an extended family, you celebrate and throw a huge party. We love this individual. So we see that there. But what we see the link to uh, is that adoption... 
comes from justification, which we'll, we'll talk about in just a second more. So that's Ephesians 1, 4. Now let's go turn back to your left and go to Galatians 4, 4 through 5. Somebody read that for us. Four and five, yes. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So it's predestined for adoption that we would receive adoption. Have you ever felt like in your own heart just in a time of struggling, a time of sin, that maybe God's in a fostering situation with me? That there is a return possibility here? But, but just go look at those two verses. There is no trial period. There is no fostering situation. This is permanent, and this was planned. This wasn't an emotional thing. Like when you go to the mall, and the puppy store is there, and you go, oh, I didn't mean to come get a puppy, but I couldn't. It's just so cute. It's not an emotional situation. This was planned and predetermined before you were ever, it existed before your mother or your mother's mother or your grandmother's mother's mother's mother ever existed. So we can look at those verses and anchor ourselves there. He's granted it to us to make us partakers. So if you are justified, you are adopted. Do, we have to hear that, right? You, there are no people, you're walking around, you're justified, but God's still wondering if he wants you in his family. That person doesn't exist. Justification necessarily follows. So you're like, well, okay, the judge isn't mad at me anymore, but I don't know if dad wants me. The Bible connects those two. Now, what would you rather, is, is there a difference in your mind between leaving the courtroom with a not guilty verdict versus coming home to a joyful father? Which one would you rather have if you had to choose? The joyful father, right? But in this situation, the judge and the father are the same. He's declared you right with him and then is bringing you home. I mean, this is the gloriousness of this doctrine that we just don't ever talk about it. So we got to keep digging in here. Let's keep going. So let's read the next sentence in the, uh, in the confession. And then we're, gonna, we're looking at uh, six subpoints. All right, the next sentence says, by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of children of God. Now, before we get in to the, to the verses, let's just think about those words, liberties and privileges. In relation to being a, uh, a child, just name out what in ideal situations, right? Because God is ideal. We, our families aren't always ideal. What are liberties and what are some privileges that you would just say should be, should be availed to any child from a father? Liberties meaning like freedoms, privileges meaning like graces, good things. Just name out a few. Love, which would be what? Privilege or liberty? Probably both, right? Yeah, probably. Like you're, you're free to be loved and you have the privilege of being loved by the Father. What else? Protection. 
protection. A privilege of protection. What else? Provision. Are you reading ahead in the confession? Don't do that. I'm, I'm trying to get you to be creative. If you, I mean, you, like, put yourself in a position, you're taking a kid home from like a Romanian orphanage. What are you telling him on the way home that you're going to get now? Protect, what do you say? Safety. safety. Yeah, the, the, the freedom. We think about safety, it's both, but you don't have to f- worry because you know you're safe. What else? What else are you telling that kid on the car ride home? Assuming you could drive a car to Romania. Access. Access to the Father. That's, a, that's, that's both as well. Because not every kid in the neighborhood has the same freedom to come and talk to your dad like you do. But it's also a privilege to be able to come and talk to your dad. That I'm, I'm granting that to you. Yeah. So you look at those kinds of things and you go, man, this, this really starts coming to light. Right? Like this really starts landing when we think about these kinds of things. So now let's look at the verses. We already read John 1, 12. But to hear it, again, let me just read it. And then y'all turn to Romans 8, 17. But John 1, 12 says, To all who did receive him, believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. A right given to you by the authority. So then let's go to Romans 8, 17. Somebody who's there, read it. All right, so you look at that. If children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ? What would God withhold from Jesus? Nothing. And you are listed as a fellow heir? I mean, this is absurd. We're getting to the level of like, what in the world? I mean, this is, the, this is what trivial, trivializing a doctrine does. It, it takes the teeth out of it. it, it it's giving you gummy bears, but it, it's not helping you. It sounds better on the front end, but it's really not doing anything for you. When you dig into it, you're like, this is, this just keeps getting better and better and better because I'm brought in to the number and enjoy the liberties and privilege of a children of God. Can you, is it really an adoption? I mean, again, outside of complete horror situations, if you bring in a child and then you, you don't give them this. Is that really an adoption? No, I mean, you're, you're bringing on a slave, right? Or, 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 a, or a parasite. You're going to feed this kid and never get anything out of him. Or you're going to put him to work. I mean, this, that's what it is. If they don't have this, then they're not full children. But God doesn't bring in anybody who's not a full child. The right and co-heir with Christ. If he loves Christ and you're a co-heir with him, then however he loves Christ, that's the way he loves you. I mean, can you fathom that? So answer this question. When has the father not loved the son? Never. So if you're a co-heir with Christ, what does that mean for you? He's never not loved you. You didn't know it at one point because... You weren't yet saved, but he's never not from all eternity past. I mean, honestly, if you start with this and then you go to election, then you turn every Arminian into a Calvinist. Because you look at like, yeah, of course I see the choice here. And of course I see the love here. Yeah, that's what I want. 
Of course, that's how God's got to be. Look, at how it's laying out. I'm a co-heir with Christ. I, I was a new kid that there are no there are no stepchildren in God's family. He says he's bringing you into the number with full privileges and liberties. There's no stepchildren. There's no, well, you're like a cousin and you kind of live with us. Your parents kind of blew it. So you're just kind of, we'll, we'll feed you till you're 18 and then get out. There's, there's no informal situations where like, well, you kind of, I mean, I call them my parents, but they're not really, and they're not legally. That, there's no situation like that in the New Testament at all. There's no tiers, there's no levels, there's no rankings. Everyone that he has elected, he has justified, and then he has adopted. All in one move, straight through. There's no, there's no you're, oh, you're almost there. If you keep working, you'll get there. Earn your right, clean your dishes, make sure your room's not put up, and then dad will, he'll fully adopt you then. No, if you, it, it was always gonna happen. Because if you're a co-heir with Christ, he's never not loved Christ, that means he's never not loved you. He's never not wanted Christ, that means he's never not wanted you. From before the foundation of the world. I mean, this is, this is what we're getting into. So now we're going to list off some of these rights and privileges. Look at this first one. Have his name put on them. That's privilege number one. So let's look at 2 Corinthians 6, 18. Second Corinthians. Oh, second Corinthians. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, I mean, That's a great passage, though. Yeah. Six, six, eighteen. Yeah. And I will be a father to you. Mm -hmm. It keeps going. And you shall be sons and daughters. You shall be, and you shall be, sons and you shall be I, a father to you. You shall be sons and daughters to me. God said that. The one who speaks and nothing comes into existence and then obeys said that to you. <coughs> That's the God. That's the name of God. Now, now go to Revelation three twelve. It's all the way at the back. Revelation 3.12. Yes, if you hit weights and measures, come back a little bit. We don't need to know what minas and drachmas are. Not right now. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the New Jerusalem. My own name. Just throw out some impressions to have your God's name put on you. Or even the significance of, of a name being put on somebody who didn't have that name. Identity. Identity. Explain that a little bit more. Expound that for us. Yeah. You're not just a, a really well-loved guest. Right. Who's, we're letting you stay here. You can live here. And then who initiates that? Can the kid go and say, hey, give me your name? No. No. It's the father. The father does that. Bear God's name. He chose to put it on you. Doesn't take it away. Is anybody uh, familiar with Ezekiel 16? 
I know, I'm just, I'm sure you were reading it this morning. <laughs> Ezekiel 16, don't, don't turn there, but let me just tell you the illustration that God's speaking to Israel, and it's kind of in the context of judgment. He's going to speak some judgment to them. But before he gets to that, he says, when you were just a baby and your umbilical cord wasn't even cut, but you were abandoned, you were left in the dirt, you still have blood on you and all the fluid on you, I picked you up and I cleaned you off. I took you home and I fed you. That's the image. Can you relate to that image? Does anybody have any like connection to something like that in, in your own life? That you can think, I mean, what's more vulnerable than a baby? Everybody becomes pro-life when they find a baby in a trash can. Nobody goes, well, no. I mean, it's just, we all get it. We see that. So in 1929 in Amarillo, Texas, there was a baby left on the doorstep of a Baptist minister. And Baptist minister was friends with a doctor and the doctor had been counseling a couple who couldn't have any kids. And that family adopted that little boy and named him Paul J. Sanders. And then that man grew up and then he married a woman from Dallas, Texas who had been abandoned by her husband and her little kid's father. She had two little kids. Her name was Carolyn and she marries Paul J. Sanders. And then Paul J. Sanders adopts Allison and Shane. And then I am born from Shane. That's why my son is named Shane. So I come from two levels of this kind of adoption. And I, I can't tell you how proud I am to wear the name Sanders. Not just from Winnie the Pooh and not just from Dion. <laughs> <laughs> I, that Paul J. said, so those, those people went and to said, we want this baby that nobody wants. And then when my dad was told by his biological father, I don't want you, Paul J. Sanders said, I want you and adopted him and put his name on him. And that's the only name I want. I mean, so you think about, that's what God has done. He's put his name on you when you couldn't do anything. You're just a helpless baby name on you. So we see that. All right. So that's, that's number one. Number two is we receive the spirit of adoption. So go to uh, Romans 8, 15. We, we talked about this earlier, but we have a lot of illustrations for our salvation and our new life, right? How we come into it and then our new status in it. Now, we certainly know because we have a whole book of Romans. Chapter 6 says that we are slaves of God, but that's not the spirit of our nature of relationship to God. What does it say? You did not receive the spirit of slavery. Now, that's an illustration as far as an unbreakable bond and the role of God as our uh, sovereign and us as obeying him. But what's the spirit of our relationship? You have received the spirit of adoption. We cry, Abba, Father. Now, Abba is not a Swedish pop band from the 70s. 
it, it is a Hebrew word. And contrary to most of our charismatic friends, it does not mean daddy. Uh -oh. <laughs> you can't tell them that because they're always wanting to pray to, to daddy God. <laughs> Abba, Abba is just a, is just, it's just dad. It's just a, I get to call you that. And even if, I mean, because you, I mean, just go back and watch Little House on the Prairie. Father it, or Paul, or I mean, it's just the familiar term that it's, I get to call you this. This isn't just a category that you fill. This is a, a name that I get to call you. Now, do you let all your kids' friends call you mom or dad? You got to at least rise to a certain level of something. But normally, no. I get to call you. You, I tell you, you four little rugrats in there, you call me dad. And what happens if you don't call me dad? What happens if you call me Stuart? You finna get a whipping. <laughs> you call me dad, right? So we have all these different illustrations that we have. We're children. We're slaves. We're the bride of Christ. We're the house of God. But the spirit, the essence of it is one of filial nature, familial. It's, it's we're co-heirs with Christ. That's the essence of it. So that's number two. Look at number three. It says this in the confession. Have access to the throne of grace with boldness and are enabled to cry, Abba, Father. So turn to Galatians 4, 6. And then also some of the rest of y'all turn to Ephesians 2, 18. Galatians 4, 6 and Ephesians 2, 18. When somebody gets to Galatians, go ahead and read it. Yeah, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We, we have that access. Now read Ephesians 2.18, somebody who's there. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. We have access. What does it mean for a kid to have access? They can get to you. They can reach you. Can you think of a good illustration of that? A kid having access to their father? Like maybe a hilarious one from COVID. Kids can walk right in. Yeah. You remember that that BBC news thing where the guys on he's he's Zoom chatting about coronavirus. What does that kid do? Boom. Comes walking in and then mom's like crawling on her knee trying to and then the baby on the little scooter comes in. But that's, that's what we have with God. That kid didn't, wasn't worried like, I don't know if dad wants to see me. Uh -uh, that, obviously that kid has no fear of it, like no, no like servile trembling, um, you're gonna hurt me, fear of his father. He wants me in there and whoever he's talking to ain't more important to me. So just boom, walks right in. That's, that's bold access. That's what we have. That's what, we're pro that's what it says. Ephesians 2, 18, we have that. See, a real child with a real dad who really wants to hear from them. That's what adoption means. I really want to hear from you. really have access to you. Yes, we do have fear and trembling before God, but it's, it's not without warmth and welcome. We have that. And, and kids, you know, barring extreme circumstances, they just naturally kind of do that, right? 
And they have to get taught to not do that. Because I, I, I have so many precious memories when we, I was working at a different job and, and having to wake up early to, to meet with the Lord and have quiet times. And Mallory, when she was two, would wake up every morning. She would walk up, sleepy eyes, just climb up in my lap like she was supposed to be there. <laughs> and I'm trying to read my Bible, be holy. And she's, and she's there in my lap. And she's like, Daddy, what's this color pencil for? Can I color in your Bible? How come you get to color in your Bible? I want to do that. What are you doing? And then she just got to where she quit asking questions. She'd sit there till we were done. But that's, that's what we have. Access, bold access. If you want to write down another cross-reference for that, write down Hebrews 4.16. Hebrews 4.16 is where they get the language of, of confidence in, the th in front of the throne of grace. That, know that verse. Because sometimes I think that when we don't pray, we give ourselves the excuse, well, God doesn't want to hear from me anyways. No, he does want to hear from you. You have confidence before him. All right. So number four is lumping together these, this triplet right here. We are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as a father. So we're going to take each one of those as, a, as one piece. So let's go to Psalm 103.13. Yeah, when we say pity, what do we normally mean? Yeah, Mr. T, right? I pity the fool. No, this is compassion. That God has compassion for you. That, that's, a, that's a promise. That's, that marks the, the uh, when, when some other kid's crying because their knee is scraped, most people, excluding probably my wife, were like, nah, not my problem. But when it's your kid, you're like, who did this? You're going to jail. Like, I'm gonna, and then you're going to clean out the wound and do all that stuff. Because they get compassion from you, right? That's what God says he has for us. Now go to the next one, Proverbs 14, 26. Somebody read it. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. A refuge, protection. I mean, you... you we say that, and then there's, lot, there's usually songs that come out, you know, every few years about him being our refuge, our strong tower. We run into it. But do you act like that? Do you think that that's real? Does he protect you? I mean, if you're Corey Tin Boom and the Nazis are at the door and they yank you off to the, to the concentration camp, are you still protected? Is that still true? It has to be. It is true. So we, we walk in that and we believe that. Now go to the next one. 1 Peter 5, 7. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Can you think of another famous passage about anxiety? About dealing with anxiety? Matthew 6. What does he say at the very end? That's the famous one, right? Verse 33. Seek ye first kingdom of God. But do you know verse 32? He says, he says, God says, I know you need all this stuff. So seek first the kingdom of God and all of this, 
I know you need it. I know that you need it. I mean, this was, I mean, I'm, I'm having to write this down to myself. Because you start thinking like, oh, oh no, man. I mean, what if Russia nukes the country? What are we doing? Who's providing for us? God is. That doesn't mean we don't do anything. But it does mean that we know where our provision is. And that, I mean, that was, my dad had several conversations with me before I got married. I remember one at this restaurant that is now gone. But he said, never, never forget that God is your provider. You are not your provider. Your talent is not your provider. Your employer is not your provider. God is. And if he's your father and he has all resources, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Is he going to let you starve? I, I, David says, I've been young and I've been old, but I've never seen the righteous lacking bread. So he provides for us. All right. So the next one. Hebrews 12, 6. What kind of Bible? You got the legalistic Bible back there? <laughs> he disciplines those he loves? How, how is discipline love? Anybody who's got kids that are out of the home? It's refinery. Training. It's an act of love. How is it loving to discipline? It's protection. How so? How is it protecting that kid? Mm. Think about if you didn't have rules, mm. it would be anarchy. Right. Which is pretty much what Revelation has become. Right. But if we don't have these rules in place, no one is safe because everybody can do what they want to do. Mm -hmm. And um, and I always linking it to, I always liken it to, well, it's just like you have to follow the rules. Like kids always think that adults, I can't wait to be an adult to do what I want. I'm, like, I'm still waiting for that one. Right. <laughs> I, can, I still have to follow rules because if I get out there and I speed and the police catch me, guess what's going to happen to Mr. Post? Whoop, whoop. He's going to get a ticket. Yep. And if I go out and I just do what I want to do and I walk off the job, guess what my boss going to say to me? You're mm -hmm. fired. Right, right. Else. So I, think, I always tell them everybody has a set of rules for protection. Mm -hmm. It's to keep us in place. Like you say, this is for the guardrails yeah. of Christianity. Right. The, the protection and the discipline is the guardrails for the relationship with him. Yeah. I mean, because what we've been taught is that any kind of discipline is not. It, it's, I mean, it's, people even do this with their dogs. I'm not looking at y'all, Scott. But people, <laughs> I mean, just like, what do you, so you, that your two-year-old runs out on the street, you say, no, don't do that. And then you spank their bottom when they come back. Wow, why would you do that? Because I need them to stop when I say stop. Because I can see what they can't see. And what they need to know right now is you listen to dad and that brings life. Not listening to dad could mean death. So I don't have to reason with you. I have to explain to you. Just do it. And whose kids do you not do that with? Other people's kids. Unless you grew up where I grew up. I mean, you get whipped by anybody in Walmart. <laughs> Other kids will be on the aisle next to us. And my mom would pull me aside. She would say, we didn't come here to listen to that kid cry, did we? And I'm like, no. <laughs> so he shouldn't be throwing a fit like that. No, I didn't even do anything. But I'm getting in trouble for what he did over there, just in case I get a bright idea. But you discipline the kids that you love and that you're responsible for, right? 
I, when I had coaches tell me, and then when I was a coach, I told them, as soon as I stop getting on you about this, then that's when you can just quit and give up because I've given up on you. Because you've shown me you don't want to listen. You don't want to get any better. And you think that you're everything. So I don't have time for that. I mean, this is football, right? This isn't life. Then I'm done. But if I love you and I think you have potential and there's hope there, then I'm going to keep disciplining. I'm going to keep telling you, do this, do it like that, do it like this. Because that's what real love is. See, if you don't discipline, it really just means you love yourself. And God doesn't love himself at our expense. He loves us. So it's you, what you could say is we still have uh, the wrath of God, but it's corrective wrath. We are completely out of punitive wrath. We will never be cast out. We know that from John 6, 37, right? Like, I will in no way cast out those who come to me. But I will chastise you. I will correct you. But you will never feel the punishment. Jesus felt all that for you. So we still have that. So that's part of being a child of God. Now, now we pull in number five. Oh, we just, man, I kind of gave it away. Number five is of rights and privileges, liberties and privileges, yet never cast off but sealed for the day of redemption. Now, there's some obvious places to go, but let's look at some, the ones that the confession cites. Isaiah 54, verses 8 and 9. Somebody get there and then read it. I will have compassion on you. I will never permanently leave you. Lamentations 3.31. It's a plain and obvious verse for us to be able to hold on to. For the Lord will not reject forever. The Lord will not cast off forever. It's a permanent adoption, right? Like all human adoptions. When adoption gets walked back, what everybody knows, that's bad. Something horrible. That's not supposed to happen. That's a trauma for the kid. I mean, all of these things. Adoption is, we, when we hear it, we assume permanent. There's no unadopting. There's no verb for that because we don't do it. It's assumed to be permanent. So John 6, 37, and we're not going to read it, but you can write that one down. That's Jesus saying, I will never cast out anyone whom the Father brings to me. Now then here, let's fill out this last uh, part of that number five is sealed for the day of redemption at Ephesians 4.30. So go to Ephesians 4.30. All right, before we talk about sealed, what is the day of redemption? The day of the Lord. That's, that's another word we got to define. What's the day of the Lord? The day of the judgment. The day of judgment. That's the last, that's the end. Right? That's the final day. The final countdown. The final countdown, <laughs> the final countdown has gone to all the way to zero. It is time. <laughs> so that day is coming. And what is, what is a seal in our context? Don't try to think Bible context right now. Just think our context. It, when you hear sealed, what does that mean? Close, Mark. Locked in. What are you talking? The jar? The ball, what, ha what happens if the seal is broken? What does it say? Take it back. You're going to get dysentery. You don't want it. What do you got, Cal? No, it just says uh, 
containers, they seal it, and if it's broken, right. then, uh, somebody's uh, It's been tampered with, right? Like it, it's, it, whatever's inside, when the seal is on, it's safe, right? So then the seal in the first century world and in, in the ancient world, uh, a king would use that to, to mark official letters, right? You melt the wax, you have the signet ring with your logo on it, you stamp that in the wax, it dries. That way, whoever gets the letter knows if it's broken, it's been tampered with. But if it's sealed, it's got the king's mark, then it can't be touched. It's protected all the way through transit, all the way through the, to the end. So that's what the Holy Spirit does for us. Now, let's, let's coalesce right here because it makes a little bit of sense before we get to our, our last one. Let's coalesce right here some of our uh, terms for us as the saved people. So the day of redemption is the day when Jesus comes back, right? Okay. And, and what's, what happens to us, the church, on the day of redemption with Jesus on that day or at that time? Be with him with the clouds. What illustration do we see in the New Testament to kind of mark that? that moment when Jesus is, we're now with Jesus, all of us are with Jesus. The whole church, past, present, and well, there is no future. That's it. That's everybody. They're all with them. What's, what's that called? Revelation 19. Think about it. You pay a lot for them now. Marriage supper of the lamb, right? Christ is the bridegroom. The bride is, we're the bride. So that's happening. So it's a wedding ceremony, right? So you had this wedding ceremony. There's a marriage happening between Christ and the church. Now, who is sealing us? Holy Spirit sealing us by the commission of the Father. So at a wedding, who walks the bride down? The Father. And it's supposed to symbolize what? In the best of circumstances, the Father's saying, I have carried her all the way to this moment and I'm handing her off to you. And in this circumstance, God is the father walking the bride. We're the bride. Christ is the groom. And he's also our father and his father. So we don't have to, the illustration breaks down. But, but in reality, like it's beautiful in the sense that he's keeping us all the way to give us to Christ, to his son. He certainly wants his son to have his bride and he certainly wants his children, his daughter to have her husband. So he's making it happen all the way there. There's no way this can't happen. That, I mean, that's what we're supposed to see around all those illustrations. They coalesce together to where we're never cast off. We have to be sealed. Eternal security is not something that's kind of a, well, I can see how you don't really get to it. No, only if you reject the Bible, I don't see how you get to it. So anybody who says, no, you can lose your salvation, that means that God is a bad father and his adoption doesn't really work and he won't really care for you all the way to the end. And he doesn't even care about his son because we are a love gift to his son. And he can't, he's incompetent to bring a bride to his son. And in the first century world where you have, in best circumstances, ordained uh, parents overseeing marriages, you can't even, he can't even do that. So he's incompetent and unloving if we don't have eternal security. It's not just something like, well, I could give it or take it. No, we're, we're, not, we're not in the soteriology anymore. We're in the doctrine of God now. So this is, this is massive for us to believe. So then here's the last one. Number six is to inherit the promises as heirs 
of an everlasting salvation. So look at Hebrews 1. We'll look at Hebrews 1 then Hebrews 6. Hebrews 1, 14. Inherit salvation. Yes. Now read Hebrews 6, 12, somebody. So that you may not become a dull, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Who gets the father's inheritance in a family structure? The kid, yeah, yeah, the kids get it, right? And it's always, you know, in the movie or in the, on the TV show, it's some big, <gasps> we're at the bequeathing ceremony, the father's dead, and it's going to the maid? Oh, it's all, or it's all going to the kid down the street? I mean, what in the world? No, we're fighting and scrapping. We want daddy's money, right? And that's, why is that such a, 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 a rich kind of literary theme is because we all assume the inheritance from the father goes to the kids. That's the assumption. And so if God is the perfect father, can he fail to give us an inheritance? So when, and also, when does an inheritance come? So after a death, Christ dies. Now we are co-heirs with him. Now that he can give away the inheritance. Now we're not, we're not uh, the, uh, the prodigal son saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Can you give me your inheritance now? We're not saying that. Christ already did die and is raised. So the inheritance is being given now. You have it now and you experience it in its fullness later on. It's almost like being a kid and you're inheriting a mansion and the Rolls Royce and the bank account. But right now, all you just need is food. But as you grow and then when you get into full maturity, which we'll experience on the other side of the grave, you get all of it. You get the mansion. You get everything. You get, you, you, you're having conversations with the father the way that you couldn't as a kid. And now you have him. I mean, I mean this is it's everything. It all just comes flooding because you are actually adopted. Adopted as sons and daughters. So, if every saved person is an adopted child of God, what does that then make us to each other? Brothers and sisters. So, you mean the Baptists didn't make it up calling each other brothers and sisters? No, that's <laughs> biblical. We, we, we claim that. We claim that. So, we, we all have the same older brother, Right? the only begotten son, everybody else in the family is adopted. So that means then that nobody is on a higher level than anybody else. The only other level is Jesus. And unless you're saying you're on his level, talking to you, Mr. Pope, the, <laughs> then we're all equals, right? We're, we're a priesthood of believers. There's, there's no ranking. So then that, that's the other thing. The, the beauty of it is, is picture it like a, like a family sitting around a dinner table, and guess what? We all know dad's coming home today with a new sister. We can't wait. We got a chair at the table, she sit, and we all, we're all looking at the door. She comes in. We got a new sister. Dad brought her home, just like he brought me home, and you home, and you home, and you home. We can't wait. I mean, that's where we get the, that's where we get the illustration of uh, the Lord's Supper, around the Lord's table. It's a family meal, and we always got room for another chair. Because God brings them in, not us. We go out and yell and tell everybody, 
trust in this one only for your salvation of sins. And then he chooses, brings them in. We welcome them in as a family. This, this is the picture of adoption. Same father and we stand equally before him. Isn't this so much better than the sentimental drivel out there of just, yeah, we're all children of God. Oh, if you do that, then you take away all this. Now, this is what we're after. Yeah. Right. And that's the problem you have with certain mm -hmm. like, sects that believe that they're like they feel like they are. That, I guess that's what the Israelites felt. They felt like it was owed to them. Right. So, you know, it's no humility. Mm -hmm. like they have these hierarchies. Yeah. And then they use these words like Abba, like they're so special mm -hmm. compared to the other Right. Well, do you think like what kid in the orphanage earned his way into the house? He wasn't just, uh, choose me. <laughs> no, what happened? Dad showed up. You didn't even know he was coming. You didn't even know he was out there and showed up and said, I want you. Come home with me. And he signs the paperwork. You don't sign anything. You're not a legal adult. And then you think about the adoptions that happen in hospitals with babies. Just, you don't even, you, you couldn't even think. You couldn't even utter words. You're, he just picks you up and takes you home. I mean, this is, this is our God. I mean, this is, this is the realm of salvation. The Bible's always fuller and more potent than man's sentiments. So that's adoption. It's a good one, huh? Glad It's good to have a confession that has it in there, right? Because it's, it's easy to understand. If justification's hard for you, then just eat adoption until you, you, you're full and then you can go and snack on justification. Then it'll start making a little more sense. But we have that um, wonderful chapter. Now, the next chapter, man, we're fitting to get after you. Sanctification. That, this is a good one, though. We're not, it'll be good. Y'all come back. We'll do that next week. It's a lot longer, man. So we're going to, well, it's only three. We'll make it. We'll make it. But it's also under, ununderstood. What are you going to say, Paul? So no, we ain't. No, we ain't. <laughs> you ain't. Oh, man. Cal, will you pray for us? Father, thank you for this evening. We thank you, Lord, that you draw all your people to yourself. And Lord, we know, Father, that through your son, Father, we're able to see the Father. And Father, we're able to see your son working in the spirit. And he draws in all of you to himself. Lord, we just thank you for this so grateful for salvation, Lord. That this knowledge, Father, you give to your children, Father. That we're able to attain it, Lord, and give back, Lord, what you have done alone. But Lord, we just thank you for each other. Thank you for my brothers and sisters, Lord, that I understand, Father, who they are in Christ alone. Father, I'm so grateful for their for their salvation and you alone. And Lord, we just pray as a family, Lord. And Father, your kingdom come, Father. And the harvest, Lord, Father, we know it's wide, Father. And Father, we know the labors are few, Father. But you have called us, Father, at this time, Father, to seek those, Father, that will hear, Father, what you have given us in our hearts and wrote in our tablets of our hearts, Lord, so we may reach them, Father, with your love that your son has done, Father. And we're so grateful, Father, for that. For the name of Jesus, Father, as we go, Father, 
Let us be excited about the gospel, Father, that we taught, Father, through this church, Father, and, and all the hearts, Father, that you have given, Father, freedom in Christ alone. And all those children say, Amen. 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 Thanks, Callie.